Hi, I'm Christy, and today I get to read the Bible with you guys. Today we're reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. It's written on the inside of your handouts. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what are you looking forward to? Uh, The saying goes that uh, humans can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without air, and three seconds without hope. It's a bit of a 
cringeworthy kind of statement, isn't it? It's a little bit too cutesy. But there is some truth to it, isn't there? Uh, People do die without food, water and air, but without hope they kill themselves. Without hope, it's really hard to keep going. So what are your hopes? What are you looking forward to? It seems to me that the average Aussie is kind of trapped in what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, that to all intents and purposes, this life is kind of all there is, that there's nothing transcendent, it's all imminent. That there might be a God, yeah, possibly, but he makes no practical difference. Uh, Everything that's worth living for is kind of here and now. So I'm looking forward to the mid-semester break, the summer holidays, getting a job, getting married, retiring, spending the kids' inheritance, and that's kind of it. (laughs) Although sometimes that frame does kind of open up a little and we see that people do actually hope for something more. Often that's caused by the death of a loved one. Suddenly people start talking about their loved ones going to a better place, that they're looking down on us and smiling. These people who have kind of lived for nothing but the here and now suddenly feel this longing, this hope for something beyond that. But is it really hopeful or is it just wishful thinking? What is that noise? (laughs) (laughs) It's a speaker. speaker. Okay, well, try and ignore that. But then you've got to ask, what about Christians? All right, that's not going to work. Let's let's see if I can turn this off and we'll see if it works better without it. Let's try that. Can you still hear me up the back? Yeah, all right, let's do that. What about Christians? Are we actually any different to the average Aussie? I mean, are we looking forward to the mid-semester break, the summer holidays, getting a job, getting married, retiring, spending the kids' inheritance? I suppose if you asked us, we would say that we're looking forward to heaven or something. But does it really make any difference to how we live? I mean, how exciting can the thought of an endless church service really be? (laughs) And I suppose that floating around on clouds playing harps is better than going to hell, but not that much better. (laughs) What do we actually hope for? Well, in the first seven chapters of his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul has been talking about what God has saved us from. And what God has saved us from is his anger at our sin, at our rejection of him. Uh, Last week, I went to get onto a bus to uni, and the bus driver, who saw me standing there right at the door, shut the door in my face and drove off without me. (laughs) You can ask Tom Almeida if you want. He was on the bus. He went up and said to them, hey, you left someone behind. And she said, oh, I'm three minutes late already. And uh, I can tell you, I was pretty angry. I felt like she treated me with contempt. Complained to Transperth and they agreed with me. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you think God feels when we treat him like that? He actually tells us how he feels. He says that he's angry. And he's right to be angry. I mean, it's not like God's a nobody like me. He's actually the creator of the universe. Our very lives depend on him. 
and yet we turn away and we shut the doors and we drive off without him, as though he's nobody. But Paul explains in the letter to the Romans that the good news is that although God is angry at us for rejecting him, he still loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to take the punishment we deserve for our rejection of him so that God can declare us right with him and we can have peace with him, not through our own efforts, but simply through trusting what he's done for us in Jesus. That we're saved from God's anger at how we've treated him, saved from the power of sin to control us and condemn us, which is wonderful, right? But that's just kind of what we're saved from. What are we actually saved for? Is there anything to look forward to? Uh, Well, Paul's answer to that question is a big yes. There's lots to look forward to. And what we have to look forward to is glory. Uh, It's there in chapter 8, verse 17. Uh, It's not on your handouts, but it's the previous verse, where he says, Now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And we get it again at the start of the section we read today. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. But what does glory mean? Uh, What kind of glory? Is it a, uh, a Ben Stokes kind of glory? Getting England home from an impossible position to keep them alive in the ashes. Uh, Certainly the English media and even uh, the Australian media, somewhat begrudgingly, have been glorifying Ben Stokes. Uh, The former English captain Alastair Cook described it as the greatest innings ever by an Englishman. So what makes Ben Stokes glorious? Well, partly it's who he is, isn't it? The perfect physical specimen of an Englishman. (laughs) Pasty white skin, red hair... (laughs) Embarrassing tattoos. (laughs) He's glorious. It's partly who he is, but it's also what he's done. That he saved England from the condemnation and shame they were destined for and rightly deserved. (laughs) And he's covered himself in glory. But how does that compare to the glory of Christ, who gave up his life to save us from the condemnation and shame that we deserve? Not just condemnation from the English media, but condemnation from God. And not simply being raised on the shoulders of his teammates, but physically raised from the dead to be seated at God's right hand as ruler over all creation. That is a greater glory than Ben Stokes. And that's the glory we get to look forward to, Paul's saying. The glory of the children of God, having persevered through suffering like Jesus. And like him, being raised from the dead to rule over all creation. That's why in verse 19, Paul can say uh, that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation is hanging out to see us revealed for who we really are, to see us in all our glory. Why? Well, because, verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
He's saying that we humans were made by God to rule over all creation, to feel and subdue it, not to crush it, but to cultivate it. And creation had a great future ahead of it, ruled by us so that it would flourish, the whole earth becoming like the Garden of Eden. But ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, ever since they turned their back on him, ever since they shut the door and drove off and were kicked out of the garden, creation has been subject to frustration. God has made it so it can't become what it was made to be. Without humans in the garden to cultivate it, the world can't become like Eden. And we see that today, don't we? With the Amazon burning and the Great Barrier Reef dying, got species going extinct faster than ever. Instead of flourishing, creation in all its tattered beauty and glory decays. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil, crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with our ah, bright wings. I think he captures it perfectly. The, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Creation does point to the glory and majesty of the Creator. And yet generation after generation of humans have trod it down, worn it out, despoiled it, and yet never quite succeeded in destroying its glory and grandeur. It may feel like the sun is setting on creation, and yet at the same time the tinge of a new dawn hovers at the edge of the horizon as creation waits in eager expectation for the Holy Ghost to hover over it once again to liberate it from its slavery to decay and bring it into the freedom and glory of the children of God. But for now, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation is groaning, aching, longing, not to die, but to give birth to a new creation. And that's what God's creation is longing for, and that's what God's children long for too, says Paul. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's like uh, tasting the first mango on the tree in September. First of September is the start of the mango season in Australia, it turns out. And when you taste that first mango, it is so good that you groan. The first tray of mangoes goes for thousands of dollars every year because people are longing to enjoy the full harvest. 
That's like that with us. We have the first fruits. We have the Holy Spirit. And he's so good that we long to experience all the fullness of God face to face. To share in Jesus' glory, not sitting around on clouds playing harps, but in bodies physically redeemed, raised from the dead, sharing in eternal life with God the Father, ruling over a restored creation under him. I wonder if you've ever tried to imagine what that might be like. Uh, A body liberated from sin and decay. All creation liberated from sin and decay. It's kind of hard to imagine. It's hard to know exactly what it'll be like, but man, I'm looking forward to it. As C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and mid-semester breaks, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. I think he, he captures our world pretty well, doesn't he? Our society, that we're far too easily pleased. The things of this world are, are nothing compared to the age to come. You might think, but is it all just wishful thinking? Just a useful sort of illusion to help us get through the difficulties of life. Uh, The sort of equivalent of saying, oh, well, we'll be in a better place. But notice this, Paul, it's not wishful thinking. Not for the sons of God, it's not. Because we've already seen what has happened to the Son of God, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. See, this new creation that he's talking about, this is not pie in the sky. This is not just wishful thinking. It's already begun. The carbon atoms, the nitrogen atoms, the blood, the skin, the flesh, the neurons that made up the body of Jesus have already been liberated from their bondage to decay. They've already burst forth into the freedom and glory of the Son of God. And nor is that all just sort of very nice for Jesus, but not much use for me. No, if you trust in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit too, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And if the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and you have the Holy Spirit, then he will raise you too. Our life is actually mapped to Jesus' life. If he has been glorified, we will be glorified. He has been glorified, so we will be glorified. But if our life is mapped to Jesus' life, we need to remember what his whole life looked like. It was crucifixion first, resurrection second. It's suffering and then salvation. It's groaning and then glory. We don't yet have our hope. We're still looking forward to it. Other people have their hope. This is, this is it. But the hope we're looking forward to is still to come. We're waiting for it patiently. But then that does raise a question, doesn't it? Uh, if our life mirrors that of Christ, if it's groaning now and glory later, 
what if I'm actually not strong enough to make it? What if the suffering becomes too much? Will I really be able to keep waiting patiently? I know Jesus did, but I'm not Jesus. What use is this great future, this great hope, if I'm simply too weak to make it? Too weak to hold on? Well, if that's your fear, then Paul reassures us with three great truths. Firstly, God the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Secondly, God the Father is working all things for our good. And thirdly, God the Son shows us that God is for us, not against us. I was talking to a mate the other day uh, who coaches a junior soccer team. And he said that on Saturday, one of the boys was uh, sitting down on the sidelines and he was, he was a bit teary. He wasn't sure why, but he noticed it. And so did this boy's dad. And he came over to him and he just ripped into him. He said, what are you doing? Stand up. We do not behave like that. Do not be weak. Some of us have probably seen fathers like that. Some of us might even have fathers like that. But our Heavenly Father is not like that. You can see it there in verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. See, God isn't some overbearing father who rips into his kids for being weak. No, instead he comes alongside us by his spirit. He puts his arm around us, he weeps with us, he groans with us. A lot of the time, we don't know what to do. As Paul says, a lot of the time we don't even know what to ask God for in the midst of our weakness and our pain, our frustration, our fear, our anxiety. But the spirit does, he says. The Spirit of God knows what to ask for. And he does. He intercedes for us with wordless groans, expressing to God the silent, agonised longings that we can't express, the needs we have that we don't even know how to ask for. No, God's not there rolling his eyes at our weakness, telling us to harden up. No, he's there with his arm around us, groaning with you by his spirit. God knows your heart and he knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit always asks for us in accordance with God's will. And that brings us to the second great reassuring truth about God's will. Because what is God's will? What is the Father's plan for us? Well, verse 28, to work all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We do often feel weak, don't we? Often feel too weak to make it to the glory that God has planned for us. But Paul says it's not about your weakness. It doesn't depend on your weakness. It depends on God's strength. Those God predestines, that is, those he chooses without regard to anything that they've done themselves, chooses before the creation of the world. 
they will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's an unbreakable chain all the way along. No one drops out. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. No one drops out. And none of it depends on us. It all depends on God. He predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. He will work all things for the good of those who love him. Not that that necessarily means a cushy life. Uh, In fact, just the opposite. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus himself was made perfect through what he suffered. Not that Jesus was sinful and gradually sort of worked it off or something like that, but rather God used what Jesus suffered in his life and death to make him exactly what he needed to be. So if it took suffering to make Jesus Jesus, do you reckon it might take suffering to make you like Jesus? Yeah, it probably will. But suffering is not a sign that God is against us. It's actually a sign that he's making us like Jesus. In the worst experiences of life, and frankly it doesn't get much worse than being crucified, God was working to make Jesus exactly who he needed to be. And if he did that with Jesus, if God could plan the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, the murder of the Son of God, to bring about the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, the salvation of many people, the forgiveness of sins, the defeat of evil and the glorification of his Son, If he can do that with the worst thing to bring about the best thing ever, then surely he can do it with the bad things that happen to us. He's already shown he can do that. And not only can he, says Paul, he will. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, if God gave up his son for you, do you think he's going to sort of hold out on you down the track? No, of course not. If he was willing to give up his own son for you, well, he must love you more than you can possibly imagine. So not only is God powerful enough to work all things for your good, he loves you enough to work all things for your good. To make you like Jesus to bring you safely into the resurrected glory of his son in the new creation. He loves you so much that he will do it. So as Paul says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or verse 33, who'll bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Can anyone condemn you before God when it's God himself who's declared you right with him through the death of his son? Of course not. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. I mean, lots of people can try. Satan will try. But actually, it doesn't matter. Because God's the one who matters. And he doesn't condemn us. He welcomes us as his children. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're trusting in him, then you have the Holy Spirit. 
God is working all things for your good to make you like Jesus in all his glory. And that Jesus himself is interceding for you. You see what Paul's saying? If you're in Christ Jesus, you could not possibly be more secure. The hope of glory, resurrected bodies in a resurrected creation with our resurrected Lord, it's not something that's wonderful but unattainable for me. No, it's as guaranteed as it could possibly be. It's absolutely guaranteed by the word of God himself, guaranteed by his power and his love. So it doesn't matter what life might throw at us. And life might throw a lot at us. Paul anticipates trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and sword. He says we're like sheep to be slaughtered. But then so was Jesus. And though he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, God raised him to life. And because of his death and his resurrected life, we can be sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. We could not be more safe. We could not be more secure. Because we could not be more loved by God than we are if we're in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what are you looking forward to? What hope shapes your life? Is it the mid-semester break? Is it a fulfilling career? Is it marriage? Is it family? Is it retirement? Is it spending the kids' inheritance? Is it the same as everyone else who lives as though this life is all there is? Or will you be like creation as it stands on its tippy toes, looking into the distance, waiting for the day when Jesus returns? like the Holy Spirit groaning with longing for that day, like Jesus waiting to return to renew all things, like God the Father waiting patiently for the day when he will lavish his inheritance on his children. Because it seems to me that that's a better hope. Well, that's a hope that is worth living for. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to keep us looking to Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross, and looking towards his return as well. Father, please help us to wait patiently. Help us to wait confidently, because we wait in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask it in his name. Amen.